and welcome to Four for Key Four, a podcast series where we take a closer look at four key themes we think will be crucial for markets for the rest of the year. In this episode, Peichan, Paul and Galvin will take a closer look at what a changing China outlook means for EM and FX markets. So Peichan, as our China expert, I guess it makes sense to start with you and to really understand what our outlook is for China, I guess, over the near term and the medium term. There's been growing concern about China and and peaking growth, particularly in light of, um, I guess, the latest pickup in Delta cases. So I guess it would be good for us to understand if and how your growth outlook has shifted for China in recent weeks and, and how you see growth from now into year end. Well, thank you, Imogen, for your question. If we were to look at China's growth from an year-on-year perspective, I would conclude that China's growth has peaked in Q1, where the growth was at 18.3%, partly boosted by a low base effect in Q1 2020. And in terms of sequential growth momentum, our forecast for 2021 was a year of two halves, whereby we're into the second half, we're looking for a gradual slowdown of growth momentum into its long-term potential growth rate of around 5 to 5.5%. The recent outbreak of COVID has clouded our outlook because the government continues to adopt a zero COVID strategy, which means they're still using aggressive testing, very strict social distancing policies, regional lockdowns, including some large ports and big cities, to the detriment of consumer and service sector re- uh, recovery. So hence, we have lowered our annual growth forecast to 8.5% for this year, from 9.0% previously. For next year, still, for next year though, we still expect a normalization of growth momentum, as we mentioned, in a range of 5 to 5.5%. So we have penciled in our forecast at 5.3% next year, expecting a rebound in consumer and manufacturing sector after the COVID situation is under control. So I guess thinking a little bit about government strategy here, how does this idea of common prosperity kind of impact your thinking regarding the longer run growth forecasts? Yeah, you have just rightly picked up the new buzzword from President Xi Jinping's recent speech and uh, policy meetings. The common prosperity, in my view, is a longer term shift in terms of policy making. And I conclude that as a shift from GDP centric policy making in the past three decades since 1979 to currently, we're probably looking at a Gini coefficient centric policy, whereby the policy making will focus much more on sustainability the quality of growth, as well as the equality of growth to the benefits of a society at large. So that probably means lower growth rate in the near term, because simply because policymakers no longer focus on engineering GDP rebounds and will allow GDP to settle at its natural growth momentum. But in the longer term, we still remain optimistic because by championing a higher quality growth, we might be seeing much more resources being channeled into sectors where we can see higher productivity growth, technology advancement and innovations. And that will probably be helpful for a longer term growth perspective. Okay, that that makes sense. So thinking a little bit now about, um, I guess, the supply side story, we've had globally lots of worries about um, supply chain issues. And I guess, again, kind of 
Delta concerns are probably weighing on on those as well. Is the consensus making too much of those concerns, or are we also thinking about supply chain issues perhaps into the into the end of this year and and next year as well? Well, I think the answer to that question is probably a yes and no. The worries are warranted because we are seeing supply disruptions for long supplier delivery time, as well as uh, chip shortage uh, in general. So. Those will be detrimental to short-term production as well as inflationary pressures building up in the in the near term. However, we don't think that's going to be a long-term concern because uh, China's supply chain remains resilient and is proven to come back up quickly and resiliently after the COVID situation is under control. So our base our base case expectation is that. The supply chain shortage problem is a concern for near term, but it's going to be temporary and it's going to be eased once the COVID situation is under control and the policy, the set of policies being relaxed in the next few months. Okay, that leads me, I guess, nicely onto my last question for you then, Pei-Chan, which is what you've sort of touched on already with the common prosperity question, but how do we see policy, I guess, shifting over the next few weeks and months to combat this kind of slowing growth outlook? Yeah, whenever there's a slowdown momentum in China, naturally market raise their expectations for more easing. As we mentioned in our previous question, that common prosperity marked a shift in policymaking uh, objectives. So that's why we, we think that for this round of slowdown, we're going to see policy response more nuanced. Instead of using counter-cyclical policies, which means aggressive liquidity and massive rate cuts, we are probably going to see a much more prudent set of policies. We don't expect rate cuts this year, and we expect the PBOC to use, use milder easing tools such as liquidity injections, as well as we look for more fiscal impulse to rebound in the second half of this year to offset partially the slowdown growth momentum. All right, thank you, Pei-Chan. So, Galvin, over to you. And I have just, well, quite a broad question for you, really. But I guess, um, given this kind of slowing China outlook, what does this really mean for emerging markets? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Imogen. So I think, you know, as Pei-Chen mentioned, you know, let's start from a regional perspective. We think that regional supply chains will definitely remain uh, buoyed. And I think that's going to remain fairly resilient relative to the short, shorter term, you know, slowing China uh, narrative. The dynamics there are not so much a question of, of Chinese, let's say, final demand, but the impact of export markets and regional supply chains uh, that have become very prominent throughout the COVID crisis uh, and, and into this year. So we think there, from that perspective, that East Asian exporters in particular will continue to perform well, uh, uh, particularly as goods demands in the West uh, remains fairly elevated. And of course, as Peichen has already mentioned, shipping bottlenecks remain. Uh, that, that are pushing up prices and, and of course, helping to, in, in a way, support uh, export, uh, the, the value, uh, the dollar value of exports, I might say. Um, that sort of might be mitigated a little bit by the shift towards, you know, the potential shift towards services demand from goods uh, as reopenings continue, particularly uh, in, in the more sort of affluent uh, and, and service sector oriented Western economies. But that being said, we think that, you know, recent trade data from places like Korea, uh, which typically uh, provide a fairly reliable uh, advanced indicator uh, for regional manufacturing, that's still showing to be fairly pro uh, robust, whilst places like China, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and even sort of looking for, further afield beyond the region into places like South Africa and Russia are seeing their trade balances continue to rise uh, as well. I think, though, from 
a, a trade perspective, uh, globally, sort of the winds are definitely shifting. And a theme that I, our, our team has picked up on over the last couple of months are that uh, trade balance shocks from the COVID crisis are actually fading. Uh, this is slightly independent, again, of 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 the the impact of a slowing China, but we think that you know uh, we think that this is definitely something that's going to be uh, uh, pertinent, uh, particularly for things like FX markets and for the, the more export oriented uh, emerging market economies uh, as well. Uh, broadly, we're seeing a return to more historical trade and current account settings as the historic import compression that we saw during the COVID crisis, which has helped uh, boost you know, current account balances and trade balances, uh, unwind slightly. Uh, and we're not seeing this now just in, in sort of uh, Asian current account, uh, current account de deficit economies like India and the Philippines, but also in other places like uh, Peru as well. I think another interesting dynamic that we, we might see, uh, sort of we might see as a, as a result of this Asian slowdown is, is as well, uh, the slowdown in Chinese tourism. I think that's a bit of a, uh, a factor that may be underappreciated or un not, not particularly talked about uh, at this moment in the market. But we think that, you know, particularly for tourism-dependent economies in the region, uh, such as Thailand, which has hit, been hit incredibly hard uh, by the COVID crisis, not just in terms of their economy, but also in terms of the financial markets. I think that's probably uh, a factor that's going to remain a laggard as well, particularly as, as Peichen mentioned, China maintains its COVID zero policy uh, and as, as sort of uh, people movements in, uh, into and out of the country uh, remain uh, subdued. So from a market's perspective then, how do you see this, um, I guess, Im impacting valuations into the end of the year and, and how are we thinking about trading this as a theme for EM? Yeah, so I think that there's sort of two elements uh, sort of that, that, that we ought to think about from, from here. Uh, and, one of them was sort of the trade angle, which I mentioned just now. But the other angle, which I think is still very relevant, uh, particularly as you know, in terms of the, the, the short and medium term market focus, is definitely COVID dynamics. Over the last couple of weeks and, and over the last couple of months, uh, Asia financial markets have priced in a, a very bad COVID outcome uh, uh, for for Asia and, and particularly you know South Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, but we think the momentum might be shifting on that a little bit. Uh, so. Uh, initially, you know, we saw a lot of these economies lag in terms of their COVID vaccine rollouts on account of the fact that uh, their, their case spread last year uh, was, was fairly contained. So a little bit of uh, uh, perhaps a, a sort of slow, a, a, a bit of momentum that was required that, that needed to be overcome on that, on the, in that regard. But that being said, over the last couple of, of, of weeks and months, we've seen a, a, a a remarkable amount of progress in, in 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 a couple of these economies, right? So so Singapore, as one example, has started out with a fairly uh, relatively slower rollout, but now in terms of the total vaccination numbers, the population that's been covered by vaccines is actually outperformed places like the U.S., uh, the U.K., and even Israel in terms of the number of total vaccinated. Uh, Malaysia, which is one that has been a laggard as well and also sort of complicated by uh, local political instability and uncertainties, uh, that's also catching up pretty, uh, pretty quickly. And, and the pace of vaccinations there is something that we're definitely uh, looking out for. So, so I guess, you know, COVID is, is one element, but where does that leave us on valuations? I think ultimately, uh, this is, is, is less so perhaps China question, but also it's, I guess to make it a little bit more complicated, it's a bit of a global growth question, a sort of a US dollar question, and, and a question of real rates and, and carry. So from that regard, we think that 
it's really a question of differentiation against the backdrop of, let's say, uh, uncertainty about the US outlook and where the dollar might be heading, how the Fed might be thinking about uh, their monetary policy normalization, as well as you know, kind of, uh, globally markets thinking about you know, what are the potential global growth implications of this new Delta variant breakout. Uh, it, it's going to be a, a challenging time overall, we think, for emerging markets. But within the, within the emerging markets, I think there's definitely space for, for, for selectivity, as we like to say, right? So, so for one, we think that continued China trade outperformance, you know, amidst these potential, you know, dollar headwinds for emerging markets. I think from that regard, we're probably likely to see uh, the, the trade-weighted uh, uh, Chinese yuan, you know, the CFETs basket uh, outperform its regional peers. And so far, momentum there has been strong as well. In addition, sort of in the, in the shorter term, we're thinking that uh, we might see uh, some sort of tactical recoveries uh, in the South and Southeast Asian economies, places like you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Korea potentially look cheap on some of the valuations. Uh, and we're seeing some sig similar signals as well uh, in terms of our FX valuations for, for potential cheapness in places like Hungary, uh, Russia, and some of Latin America as well. I think that being said, you know, the, the, the fundamentals uh, are not necessarily uh, correlated with, with market price action. Uh, and of course, markets can be uh, sort of irrational longer than investors can remain uh, liquid is, is perhaps a, a good way to frame this in, in these difficult times. Um, I might just leave sort of more of the valuations and, and the, the FX perspectives uh, for our next speaker, uh, Paul, on that. Gavin, you could be haste. <laughs> that brings me very nicely onto you then, Paul. And so I guess a, a similar question really for you, quite, quite broad-based to what I said to Gavin, but how do you think this China outlook really feeds through to currencies? And I suppose from that perspective, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts, particularly around what it means for um, commodity currencies and also how you're thinking about this in relation to uh, the theme of, of US exceptionalism. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Imogen. So that was quite a, a, a long question. I'll try and uh, tackle the various parts of that, that question in turn. I, I think that, you know, Galvin just did an excellent job uh, just there, just picking up on, you know, what it means for global markets, the way it sort of goes from China to commodities to global growth uh, into uh, currencies. But I think just from a very high level, I would just start by saying, I just think this is an incredibly important uh, topic for currency markets. There's not really a, a single currency globally that isn't touched or impacted some way uh, through commodities and China being the marginal uh, drive or buyer of uh, commodities. And everything that Pei Chen has just said there, I, I think is uh, hugely uh, important. Uh, Galvin touched on the way that it sort of um, impacts currencies, um, just at a very high level again, you know, relative growth, terms of trade, productivity, um, central bank reaction functions to imported, exported uh, in inflation, um, which central banks are going to move first? Um, will commodity currencies move first if commodity markets are strong? Or is it the actual, the ones where they don't have to rely on commodities that uh, signal? And as we know, uh, FX rates will move with um, interest rate uh, market. So um, I think it's very important. I think it plays out uh, through the end of the year into next year. Uh, another part of the question you asked me was about US exceptionism. And it, again, it, it really does play to that theme of US dollar uh, exceptionism. So uh, US growth strong, supported by extremely loose fiscal uh, policy, but at the same time, 
that weakens the external environment, larger current account, and therefore the US needs to attract capital to fund that current account deficit. Now that becomes harder if the rest of the world is doing better. Uh, but if the rest of the world is being held back because China is slowing and you're not getting the policy stimulus, commodities are, are weak, central banks uh, aren't tightening, uh, relative growth uh, isn't expected to shift in favour of those commodity-based currencies, then the, the US finds it so incrementally easier to attract capital to fund the deficit, uh, and therefore the US dollar does uh, relatively well. And uh, listening to Galvin there and Pei Chen, it, it feels like it's not um, uh, not the right point to give up on US exceptionalism and a, a generally stronger uh, dollar moving forward. Uh, the final point I'd make in that opening question, and, and Galvin um, picked up on it as well, is the, the importance of the, the dollar CNH rate to all currencies. So we always think about two um, anchors in global foreign exchange markets, one being dollar CNH, uh, the other one being euro dollar. If euro dollar isn't moving, then it's very hard for other European economies to move against the dollar because you have this loss of competitiveness. In Asia, it's exactly the same. If dollar CNH isn't moving, uh, then it's hard for things like Thai baht to appreciate, Taiwan, you know, all these other currencies. So um, if we don't get movement in dollar CNH, and it's going to be hard for other currencies, regional currencies to do well. But listening to Galvin there, some upside pressure uh, to the basket uh, should allow some of the other currencies to do well as well. Mm, that makes sense. So into year end then, I, just to round this off, I suppose, from a, uh, looking at it from, a, again, from a markets perspective, how are you thinking about trading this through currencies into the end of the year? Yeah, so in terms of um, the outlook for commodities in this particular topic, it, it feels like we're, we're not talking about some kind of super cycle in commodities. It's more about a cyclical recovery in commodities that ultimately helps uh, commodity-based currencies. And, and again, it feels like it's a little bit too early to chase that, that theme. So we still think you'd stay defensive uh, with the dollar. Galvin, again, talked about dollar uh, EM, but it's probably the same for things like uh, euro dollar. So uh, dollar stays relatively strong. Uh, but then there's there's two things that you, I think we, we can trade into uh, the end of uh, the year. Uh, the first point, I think, is shifting momentum over coming weeks. So at some point, markets will have priced the high watermark for US growth, European growth, and at the same time, the low watermark for Asian growth. At some point, people will have um, um, adequately price the downside risks for Asia growth um, based on what you know things that Pei Chen was uh, saying. Uh, and once they do, then that starts to shift. So uh, for the moment, we favor sort of relative value trades rather than being outright short dollars in, in that environment. So things like uh, looking for the uh, Kiwi dollar to outperform the Australian dollar is one particular uh, trade that we, we like. Um, Euro dollar maybe uh, risks are shifting to the upside. Uh, the second way you can trade this, I think, is um, as Asia moves to a sort of COVID exit strategy, um, there's going to be the shift away from manufacturing to services, and that's going to um, influence the, the mix of commodity prices that move. So maybe we'll move away from sorry, iron ore and copper 
more to petroleum, oil, and there's a whole range of currencies that should do well in that environment. So the, the currencies that we, we continue to like, certainly for the majors, uh, I'll leave the EM ones to uh, Galvin, uh, for example, looking for downside for Euro Norway. And certainly with the with risk markets looking like they're turning higher, then that's certainly a trade that we would like to. So relative value trades, petroleum trades, uh, but also maybe shifting upside risks for Euro dollar as the momentum shifts away from uh, the US gradually. Okay, great. Thanks, Paul. And, and thank you, Galvin and Peyton as well for joining me. Um, and to our listeners, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Four for Q4. Uh, please do make sure that you check out the NatWest Corporates and Institutions YouTube channel for other episodes in this series. And remember to hit subscribe so you can listen to the latest episodes of Four for Q4 and other podcasts from the NatWest Markets team as soon as they're available. Bye for now. Bye.